All right, this week is health week. I've talked a little bit about my own health situation, but very much still focused on weight loss. I've, I'm only down about seven pounds um, since the last time I talked about this, and I need to lose another 50 more. But um, I keep coming back to the Levels podcast. The Levels Health podcast is just a really great resource that isn't too overwhelming like sometimes the Huberman, Huberman Lab podcast can be. And this one talks a little bit about the transition from... Um, remedial care to preventative care through fixing your diet and then going into the problems with the keto diet and what this guy Stephen Gundry recommends. It's also just really interesting to have two doctors talking to each other about unresolved sciences within their field. You think that science is very definite and scientific, but when it comes to the human body, nothing is for certain. I'd love to start by having you share a bit about your professional evolution. Um, we share a similar thread in our paths in that we left the surgical world in order to help patients through food. And I'm just so interested in how this unfolded for you. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how after doing like thousands of heart surgeries and being so deep in the cardiothoracic surgery world, you decided to leave and realize that you could maybe make possibly a bigger impact by helping people understand their diets and their holistic health? Yeah, my, my life changed. Uh, it's about 27 years ago now uh, when I met uh, a patient from Miami, Florida, who I call Big Ed in all my books. He's a real person. He was a 48-year-old gentleman who was diagnosed with inoperable coronary artery disease. That means you couldn't put stents in, you couldn't do bypasses because everything was clogged up. And he would go around the country uh, to centers uh, like mine at Loma Linda, where idiots like myself would take on just about anybody. I just, I guess, ego or whatever. Now, and he, everywhere he went, uh, he was turned out and nothing you can do for him. So he had spent about six months doing this and he arrived uh, at my office at Loma Linda and he brought in the angiogram, the movie of his heart from Florida six months earlier. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I, I, I got to agree with everybody. There's, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do for you. They're right. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's what everybody says. But here's the deal. I've been on a diet for the last six months and I've lost 45 pounds. Now, this guy was 265 when I met him, big Ed. Um, so he was over 300 when all this happened. And he says, I've gone to a health food store and I've, I've, I've been taking all these supplements. And he had actually brought in this giant shopping bag full of supplements. And he said, you know, maybe I did something in here. And I'm like, well, you know, good for you um, for losing weight, but that's not going to do anything in there. And I know what you did with those supplements. You made expensive urine, which is what I firmly believe. He said, you wasted your money. He said, look, you know, I've come all this way. Why don't we just get another angiogram and let's see. Yeah. Okay. So we do. And in six months' time, this guy cleans out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries, 50%. And I've never seen anything like that. And I'm going, I don't know, wait a minute, you know, tell me about this diet of yours. And so he starts talking and I go, wait a minute. Uh, I, back in the dark ages, um, I had a special major at Yale University where we could design a major and have a thesis, very much like a master's program, and defend our thesis. And my thesis was, you could take a grade ape, manipulate its food supply, manipulate its environment, prove you would arrive at a human being. And so 
I actually defended my thesis and got an honors and then gave it to my parents and went off to become a famous archer. So as he's talking about what he was eating, I went, wait a minute, this is my, my stupid thesis at, at Yale. This is, you're, you're on, quote, the ancestral diet. And I go, well, let me see that bag of supplements. Now, I'm very famous for protecting the heart during heart surgery. I invented a bunch of catheters, patented them, and secret sauce that we'd put down the veins and arteries of hearts. And I started looking through his supplements and several of the things he was taking, I was mixing in my secret sauce and I was putting it down the veins and the arteries. And it never occurred to me to swallow the dumb things. So I, you know, I call my parents who were in San Diego and I say, hey, you know, you still have my thesis. They say, oh yeah, you know, it's in the shrine. And I said, well, you know, send it up because I was a big fat heart surgeon. I was running 30 miles a week, going to the gym one hour a day, eating a healthy, low fat diet. And, you know, I had migraine headaches doing baby heart transplants and, you know, arthritis. I had, I had braces on my knees to, to run and, you know, pre-diabetes and horrible cholesterol. And so I put myself on my thesis and I started taking a bunch of supplements. And, you know, I lost 50 pounds the first year. And what happened was I started putting my patients that I operated on, on this program and sending them to Costco or Trader Joe's for supplements. There wasn't an Amazon back then. And lo and behold, um, these people's diabetes went away, their high blood pressure went away, their arthritis went away. And I'm going, what, about a year into this, uh, my wife still calls it Black Friday. I looked in the mirror before I went into work at Loma Linda and I said, you know, I've got this all wrong. Uh, I shouldn't operate on people and then teach them how to eat to avoid me in the future. I should teach them how to eat and they'll probably be able to avoid me in the first place. And so, I mean, what a stupid career choice. Um, I mean, at the height of my career to say, you know, I've got this backwards. And so I actually resigned my position at Loma Linda. And I moved you know, a few miles down the road to Palm Springs, where I opened up a, a clinic. And I asked people, look, I want to, you know, give you a list of foods to eat, not eat, and then want to send you to Costco or Trader Joe's. And I want to draw blood on you every three months that uh, will insurance or Medicare will pay for. And you're my research project, okay? And everybody, you know, goes, yeah, okay. And but that uh, you may have found out as a, as a former surgeon, teaching people how to eat um, is not. Uh, let's just say the monetary benefits of teaching people how to eat is not as good as uh, surgery. But my wife, you know, bless her heart, said, "Hey, you know, um, you're in this, you know." for a purpose and you have a belief and okay, let's, let's give this a go. And that was you know, 25 years ago. So anyhow, so doggone it, big Ed, look what you've done. It is such an amazing and inspiring story. Um, and I think what people listening might not realize is that this concept of reversal of atherosclerotic heart disease. So like true blockages in the heart, like 
we're basically taught in medical school that doesn't happen. Like this is not something. And so that I can imagine that that was just like a a big moment um, of like, what, what is going on here? I've got to dig into this. And so I think even to this day, that's still a paradigm that's quite um, in the water of like, you don't reverse heart disease once it happens. And so I, so it's just incredible that you have now spent the last, what, almost 20 years or so years really preaching the power of food. And it's also interesting to me that it kind of started with supplements because now it feels like a lot of your work has moved really into whole foods, unprocessed diet, really using food as medicine realm. Um, but that there was a role for supplements and the, the end of your book, which I think you talk about the supplements you take every day. So I, I, I assume that your perspective on expensive urine has changed quite a bit since then. H- how many do you take every day? There were like probably what, 40 in the book there. Oh, I take, I take about 120 different things in the morning and about 80 at night. So I under, under it by about three times, but yeah. And so that's, that's, that's so fascinating. Um, so I could just talk to you about your story all day, but I want to, I want to make sure we get to the book because it's such an amazing book. Um, and a lot of people in the levels community are really interested in the keto diet because obviously we're trying to keep our blood sugar more stable. Um, sure. But what I love about this book is that it shows a very different picture of the keto diet that is actually much more balanced, much more focused on colorful plant foods and a really diverse uh, probiotic rich, prebiotic rich diet. So your book, Keto Code, breaks down how a lot of what people think about what is beneficial about the keto diet is actually for different reasons than they think. And that a lot of benefits of the keto diet can actually be more impactful if you shift up uh, the the sort of real focus on macros and bring in a lot more plant food and a lot less macro tracking. So can you start by talking about why our conventional dialogue about the keto diet is flawed and what people are missing? Yeah, so um, I, I've had a ketogenic version of my diet from you know the plant paradox onward. And one of the things that and it worked very well, still works very well. But one of the things it's based on is uh, medium chain triglycerides, MCT oils. And anyone who actually looks at the lists of the of my ketogenic diet, even in that book says, whoa, there are a lot of plant carbohydrates in here. And how the heck is that a ketogenic diet? And yet it worked you know, very well and still does. So when I was writing my, my last book, The Energy Paradox, um, I like to back up my explanations with, you know, cold, hard research. And I, I firmly believe that ketones were, you know, a, a great fuel and that your, your brain loved them, your muscles loved them. They were the perfect fuel and that ketones being in ketosis made you an efficient fat burner. And that's why you lost weight. Sounds really good to me. Well, so I wanted to back this up. So um, work out of Harvard and and also the NIH in humans show the exact opposite. Um, at, at, at full ketosis, only 30% of energy needs are met by burning ketones. The rest is primarily free fatty acids. And even at full ketosis, the brain, which supposedly thinks ketones are the greatest thing since sliced bread, uh, but we don't want sliced bread. But, uh, no, uh, the brain still needs 30 to 40% glucose as, as a fuel. So 
that's a problem. The other problem is if you look at the ketogenic uh, literature in uh, athletic work, even Vogel and Finney would say you have to get keto adapted and it may take weeks, but the work out of Harvard with Dr. Owens showed that at, at ketosis, at three days, the muscle's preferred fuel is ketones, and then it falls off and becomes free fatty acids. So wait a minute, Finney and Vogel are saying, well, you're gonna, you're, your exercise tolerance is going to really plummet for maybe two weeks, and yet muscles do best with ketones at three days. So you can't have it both ways. Uh, and so, so wait a minute. So ketones aren't all this amazing fuel. And the work in race walkers shows that in race walkers, you actually have to have far higher oxygen consumption to match the ability that you would get from more of a carbohydrate-based diet. So all of these human studies are, are sorry, they're really saying, well, wait a minute, uh, ketones aren't this amazing fuel. And if in fact, ketones made you an efficient fat burner, what's the problem? Well, as we all know, fat has nine calories per gram and protein and sugars have carbohydrates have four calories per gram. So if you were really an efficient fat burner, then efficiency means you get more mileage out of a gallon of gasoline. So now, wait a minute, you're eating more than twice the amount of calories when you're eating fat, and you're telling me you are an efficient fat burner, so you all ought to be gaining weight if that's actually true. And some people, in fact, do gain weight on the ketogenic diet. A number of my patients do, like what I talk about in the book. So something's all not, not right with that idea. Okay, I included that clip just because I needed you to understand some context behind his journey into this career and then his focus on the problems with the keto diet, which is pretty funny for the author of a book called Unlocking the Keto Code, because he argues that it's not exactly keto, it's actually something called micro mitochondrial uncoupling. The next super cool part of the book, so we've talked about mitochondrial uncoupling and really like the takeaway is like, you don't actually want to go on a keto diet. You want to go on a mitochondrial uncoupling diet. And that's what you're doing with the keto diet, but people aren't even realizing it. And this is where the magic is, is that there's all these other things. If the end goal is really mitochondrial uncoupling, well, there's like 10 other things you can do to mitochondrial uncouple. And guess what? They don't involve just totally restricting your carb intake. And it can actually bring in all these other nutrients that are beautiful for the body. So I'd love for you to talk about like what are some of the other foods and lifestyle choices that also stimulate a mitochondrial um, uncoupling process that can kind of give us the benefits of a keto diet without the intense restriction of a lot of healthful foods? One of the, one of the shocking findings in the book is uh, back in World War I, it was noted that uh, factory workers in Germany and France uh, were very skinny and despite eating a lot, and they were running actually high temperatures. And nobody knew why that was until actually the 1920s when they discovered 
that there was a compound in the making of gunpowder called 2,4-dinitrophenol. Phenol, remember that word, phenol. Hmm. And it's called 2,4-DNP. And it was noted that when people were exposed to 2,4-DNP, that they actually started losing weight and they started running high temperatures. So a couple of Stanford doctors in 1930 began giving patients DNP as a weight loss drug. And over 100,000 prescriptions for DNP were written in the United States alone in the 1930s. And it was miraculous. At low dose, DNP, you could lose a pound a week. At high dose, you would lose five pounds a week. I mean, miraculous. You, you know, le levels would be out of business. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what was happening was um, these people, it turns out DNP was the first oral mitochondrial uncoupler. The problem with it was it wasn't making any more mitochondria. It was not producing mitogenesis. Mm -hmm. So people lost tremendous amounts of weight. They ran very high temperatures because they were generating heat from, and they started having thyroid issues. But probably the worst part was people developed cataracts, and this was before cataract surgery. And I joke, you know, it'd, it'd be great to see what you look like in your skinny dress, but you're blind, um, right? Oh. And, and then people started dying because, quite frankly, like you were mentioning, they ran out of ATP. Yeah. They were so uncoupled, they literally could not make enough ATP to mm. live. So the FDA, newly formed in 1938, banned DNP from uh, prescription. But when I discovered that literature, I go, wait a minute, phenol, where have I heard the word phenol? Oh, polyphenol. And that's lots of phenols. And so, you know, what is it about this phenol ring that's so interesting? And what's really cool is, um, Plants have mitochondria, they're called chloroplasts, and their mitochondria, chloroplasts, are damaged by the very thing they need to produce energy, which is photons from sunlight. We need oxygen, and oxygen is damaging to our mitochondria. So plants have to be protected from mitochondrial damage from sunlight. And they produce polyphenols to uncouple their chloroplasts so that the sunlight won't damage them. And, you know, we see polyphenols all the time in the fall because the green leaves turn all pretty yellows and oranges and reds and purples. And those are the polyphenols that have always been there in the leaves, but now we can see them. So what happens is, so those polyphenols were being used by the plant to protect, to uncouple its mitochondria. So then we eat polyphenols. We don't absorb polyphenols very well, but it turns out our gut bacteria absolutely love polyphenols. It's actually a prebiotic fiber for gut bacteria. They in turn make those polyphenols bioavailable. And so now the plant's polyphenols are given to us to protect our mitochondria by uncoupling mitochondria. And every time I think about this, I start thinking about the Lion King and the circle of life and, you know, oh, we eat the plants and then we, yeah. So 
these plant compounds were designed to uncouple their mitochondria to protect them, and we then get the benefit. So the point of all that is, when we say eat the rainbow, what we're really saying is eat polyphenol-containing foods. And when you look at, like the Mediterranean diet as an example, uh, it's just this cornucopia of mm. polyphenol-containing foods. You look at the Okinawan diet. The Okinawan diet, for the traditional what Okinawan diets, 85% of their calories came from the purple sweet potato. Mm. And the purple sweet potato is just a giant hunk of anthocyanin, you know, mm. polyphenols. So, wow. It's it's amazing. And I think um, it's it's also interesting because you talked about this in the book. I think a lot of people think that the reason we want to have polyphenols is for antioxidant uh, capacity. And you were saying, you know, it's actually so much, maybe not even that, to, like maybe not that at all. Actually, a lot of it is really what this is doing to the gut and then the gut producing metabolic byproducts that are incredibly helpful for our, for, for upregulating uncoupling proteins. Is that accurate? Yeah, okay. Exactly. Right. But one thing I want to just make sure I understand from like the molecular side is you talked about that the polyphenols, these rings are protecting the plant from sunlight. And so is this, does this mean that let's say you have a lot of sun energy you're driving a lot of chemical reactions through the chloropast, that's going to generate like oxidative stress and reactive oxygen species. And you don't want that type of damage in huge quantities. And so the plant has to just like release valve some of that essentially extra energy substrate. Is that, is that right? Or yeah, the, 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 so photon damage is the equivalent of oxidative damage in us. So photons, sunlight is damaging. Uh, any of us know that, but the plant requires photons to you know, produce energy. So what's really interesting, you know, we, we've known in uh, in winemaking that the the closer the vines are grown mm -hmm. to the sun, the higher the elevation, the more polyphenols the plant makes because it's far more exposed. And then you go, so then you go, you know, okay, we've known that for a long time, and now we know. Oh, that's why they make more polyphenols is to, it's getting far more hammered by sunlight. And so you've got to repair the damage. The other thing that's fascinating that I talk about in the book is melatonin. Yeah. So plants are a great source of melatonin. And I laugh, say your plant doesn't need to go to sleep. <laughs> so what the ding dong is the plant making melatonin for? And that's because there are actually only two antioxidants that have ever been discovered in mitochondria, and that's melatonin and glutathione. And I, I talk about it in the book, uh, for years, I used to present a, a paper at the World Congress of Polyphenols, and the the chairman, um, Dr. Edes, Marvin Edes, would, the one I remember distinctly was in Lisbon, and he got up to speak room of researchers. And he said, if any of you here actually think that polyphenols are antioxidants, you could leave right now because I don't have the time to show you why that's not true. And I went, what? Maybe I better leave. But he was absolutely right. They, they are not antioxidants. And our traditional antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin E, right. 
have no effect on mitochondrial antioxidation. It's melatonin and it's glutathione. Now, vitamin C can regenerate glutathione or, and vitamin C can regenerate vitamin E, but it's not for mitochondria. It's so interesting. So if, if the plant analogy about sunlight essentially upregulating polyphenol composition for protective mechanisms, I'm curious why in humans, essentially that excess stress from like, let's say excess glucose, for instance, I, you mentioned that glucose inhibits mitochondrial uncoupling, but in my mind, it would be like, oh, well, if the mitochondria was getting this excess signal of energy that was driving it towards essentially going to drive towards increased oxidative stress and whatnot, would this, wouldn't that trigger, like, wouldn't it make sense that the cell would want to trigger uncoupling to kind of have a release valve for that? But it's actually the opposite. It's exactly the opposite because way back when it was feast or famine. Right. And for instance, I've written, there's actually huge books written about this. Great apes only gain weight during fruit season. Um, only. And, you know, we inherited those genes. Um, and so during calorie excess, we would want mitochondria to shuttle any excess into fat storage. That would be what you would want. Right. And so... But that didn't happen, you know, every day. We, we now have, you know, 365 days of endless summer. And, you know, we, we're always in fruit season. Yeah. And we're always in caloric excess season. So we don't have a genetic program that understands that this would happen 365 days a year. Yes. He then goes on in the podcast to talk about the benefits of MCT oils. But this clip... And this mixtape has gone on way too long already. So if you want the full story, I do recommend this one out of the uh, entire Levels catalog. I thought it was very well-reasoned discussion and very grounded discussion. 